Welcome to episode 9 of the Rubber Biscuit Road Show. I am your host, the Gypsy. Well, in last week's episode, we're witness to an act of violence against my mother, Shirley. We also were witness to how I came into this world. I was conceived. We also got to play witness to how Leroy is trying to make up to Shirley all those things that he hasn't been able to give her in the past. The main one being himself. Currently, I'm at the cemetery and they are getting ready to plant my biological father into the ground. When we pick up this week's episode, Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1, I See Dead People. You would not give what I have gave. What did you gain? What did you save? Shaping words not my own, recalling memories never shown. A touch, connection which cannot stand, left on the surface of the cold still hand. I twirled the end of the cigarette between my fingers, feeling the heat come off the glowing red tobacco as I forced the smoldering cherry from the end of the smoke. I watched the burning ember hit the hard ground and I could hear the sizzle as the wetness swallowed the cherry. I had no desire to disrespect the dead by tossing my cigarette on the ground in this sacred place. I looked towards the coffin and the small group gathered near it. Some were standing, but most were sitting in the folding chairs that face the coffin like the seats in a VA. The funeral director, with an air of solemnity that he performed on a daily basis, lifted the lid of the casket and busied himself with laying back the shroud and tidying up the body. He did this swiftly with his back to the assembled audience like a magician preparing to amaze us down. Observe, an empty box. Presto, a body! The undertaker silently moved away from the casket and folded his hands in silent reverence. I slowly approached this odd tableau that I did not want to be a part of. As I drew nearer, I could see the tip of a nose, then a rounded head with dark greased back thinning hair. A paisley shirt and burgundy polyester leisure suit hung loosely upon a thin, gaunt body. I drew closer to the casket, all eyes upon me, boring into my back and pushing me onward. I looked down upon the face made of wax, a mannequin dug out of the dusty storeroom of a defunct department store. Someone, as some sort of cruel joke, had painted the mannequin to resemble a thinner, older version of me. Was it made of plaster? It could be, or maybe plastic. I reached out a trembling hand and touched the shoulder of the wine-colored polyester. My hand rested there for a moment as I studied the features and let my gaze drift down to the bloodless hands crossed one over the other. Wow, what detail did get into these mannequins? It actually looks like real hair on the back of the hand and on the fingers. Fingers. Finger. Ring finger. Empty. I looked at my left hand, the hand that rested on the shoulder of the mannequin, the hand upon where the middle finger held a ring. The ring had rested upon that finger since 1968 and had only been removed three times. Each time it had been removed, I had suffered a broken bone, so suffice it to say I was more than a little superstitious about it and its significance. Now standing here in this mist on the cold gray day next to the overpriced box that held the earthly remains of Leroy Everett George, the true significance of the ring suddenly hit me like a rock, fired from the sling of a shepherd boy. The ring had belonged to the man in the box. The ring had been a promise of love, a promise that had been broken. The ring had been given to my father by my mother, and later to me by my mother as a connection to my father. My father, who now lay pale and silent before me and no longer belonged to this earth, but who would soon be beneath her surface. Oh God, the rain has blocked out my vision. My breath is gone. 
and my heart now resides in my throat. Shirley stood in front of the jewelry counter at Pelletier's department store, looking at the wedding sets. Leroy had promised her that they would be married as soon as he could get Wilma to agree to a divorce. Wilma had been fighting him, refusing to let go, but Shirley was confident that Wilma would eventually give in and turn Lee loose. So until that time, Shirley would continue to browse and window shop the stores for those things that would one day make the wedding she dreamed of the most glorious moment of her life. Shirley had been at the counter for a quarter of an hour looking at and trying on rings. She was just starting to move away when a glint of light caught her eye. At the back of the case, amid the numerous displays of diamond and gold rings, a single black velvet finger stood at a slightly arched angle. Upon this finger rested a wedding set consisting of the man's band, the woman's band, and the engagement ring. There was really nothing unusual or spectacular about the set that made it more outstanding than any of the other sets. It was, in fact, almost too simple in its way when compared to the other sets around it. The engagement ring was a simple gold band with a small quarter-carat diamond solitaire. The woman's band consisted of another simple gold band in which small divots were cut around the top and bottom edge of the ring. Between the divots, the ring slightly bowed out, creating a curved effect. The man's band echoed the design of the woman's band, except that it was a little larger and wider in size. No, there was really nothing special that would make this set outstanding, except its simplicity. It was the purity of the design that attracted Shirley. She had always felt that as complicated as the relationship between her and Leroy had been, that their love was simple and pure. She felt that this set in the Diamond Solitaire represented the complexities of their relationship, while the bands were a symbol of the simplicity of their love. <laughs> the sound brought Shirley out of her revelry, making her jump. She turned to see Mr. Harrison, the floor walker, standing at her left elbow. Mr. Harrison, you startled me. Shirley said as she placed her hand over her heart. Evidently, he dryly intoned. And does your mother know you are here? Shirley hated his pompous attitude and snooty manner. Does he think he's talking to a child? No, Harrison, my mother doesn't know I am here. Why don't you run upstairs and tell her? Or perhaps you would like a dozen Vestal Virgins to carry you up while naked children throw rose petals at your feet. Shirley knew that the suggestion of Harrison's rumored desire for younger lovers would get under his skin. She doubted if he had ever dated anyone under 18, but for a man nearing 50, Shirley found it disgusting that most of the women he was seen with looked like girls barely out of high school. Harrison tugged at the corners of his slick gray vest, brushed off the sleeves of his immaculate black wool jacket, readjusted the red rose in his lapel hole, cleared his throat, and turned to leave and said, Ladies... Slightly dipping his head and touching the edge of his mustache, Harrison walked away. Ladies? Why do you say ladies? I think you hurt his feelings. Shirley turned around to see Alice McElwain standing on the other side of the jewelry counter. This was her department, and she ruled it with the pride that comes from the knowledge that it was her efforts that kept this department running smoothly and making a profit for the company. Oh, hi, Alice, Shirley said a little sheepishly. How long have you been there? Alice shook her grain head and let a small smile cross her lips. Long enough, came her reply. He just really pisses me off, Shirley stammered. What I am doing is none of his business. Alice shook her finger at Shirley. Language, dear, she admonished. Shirley grimaced under the reprimand. Alice and Pearl were best friends, and at times Shirley felt like she was talking to her mother when she spoke with Alice. He thinks he owns the store. Alice chuckled. Sometimes I wished I could live within my delusions. 
Shirley sighed. Do you think he'll tell Mom what I said? She asked. Without a shadow of a doubt, answered Alice. The little weasel is probably in her office now, reenacting the whole scene. Both women looked up as if they could see through the ornate tin ceiling and into Pearl's second floor office. So, were we doing a little daydreaming, dear? Shirley blushed as Alice nodded her head and reached below the counter. Here, she said, sliding away waveform across the counter and laying a pen on top of it. Feel this out. Shirley looked at the form and back up at Alice, who was removing the wedding set from the velvet finger. Hurry, dear, your mom will be here any moment and we don't want to let her in on our little secret, do we? The steel gray of the morning had given way to the milky white of the afternoon. I surveyed the dirt road that ran east and west in front of the small, nondescript farmhouse. We had left the gravesite only a mere fifteen minutes before and had now arrived at Cousin Duane's home for the wake. The term wake for the morbid party that takes place after family and friends plant their dearly departed loved ones in the ground seemed inappropriate when you considered that one member of the party would never wake again. Cast party or maybe casket party would be more an accurate description of the events that take place after your goodbyes are said. I looked at my hands and saw that dirt was still clinging to my hands from the clump I had thrown on top of Leroy's coffin as it slowly lowered into the cold, wet earth. The entry door entered the small house into the kitchen. I spied the bathroom door off to one side and quickly entered, locking the door behind me. I emptied my bladder, then turned to wash my hands in the small old-fashioned porcelain-covered steel sink. As I scrubbed the dirt of the graveyard from my hands, I stared at myself in the mirror. A familiar, yet not so familiar face, whose counterpart now lay buried six feet underground, looked back at me. I splashed cold water on my face, trying to wash away the red puffiness of my eyes. I knew that in the more personal confines of the small farmhouse that it could not escape the inquisition that was sure to come. I leaned over and took a long pole from the stream of icy water that was flowing from the ancient chrome faucet. Well water. I love the taste of Kansas well water. There's a certain taste to the Kansas variety of well water that makes it seem almost alive. I don't know if it's a slight saline content or the minerals it carries, but it has a flavor unlike any other water on earth. I took another long pole from the faucet and prepared to go out and greet my inquisitors. I'm going to take a moment to pause here in Shirley's story and what is about to transpire. I need to give a warning to you, the listener, that what you are getting ready to hear is an act of very graphic and grisly violence. You are going to hear tones, expressions, and accents from a time period long ago that are not relevant to today. However, I must relate these things exactly as they happened and to the best of my knowledge what was said and what transpired. I got this knowledge from my mother and as I said in the last episode from a journal that she kept. So please, if you have extreme sensibilities, do not proceed past this point. Shirley splashed cold water on her face from the shiny chrome faucet, trying to wash away the red puffiness from her eyes. She had been crying all afternoon, and each time she thought she had cried all she could, she would break down again into fits of uncontrollable sobs. She could hear little Jimmy in the next room playing with the toy train that Leroy had got him just a few days before. Chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-choo-choo came the small voice of her son as she sat down on the closed lid of the stool and buried her face into the towel. The towel held Leroy's scent. He must have used it that morning when he took a shower. 
She inhaled deeply and broke down into uncontrollable sobs again. Damn that nigger. Damn that nigger to hell with his stupid practical joke that had cost him his life and Leroy his freedom. Oh, God, she wailed. Why, my Lee, why? Shirley heard the bathroom door swing open and looked up to see little Jimmy staring at her. Mommy, are you hurt? The small boy asked. Shirley stretched out her arms and her son rushed into her embrace. Holding the child against her, she whispered into his soft hair, No, baby. Mommy's just sad. Shirley had caught the Super Chief out of the San Fe Terminal in Topeka, heading for the Great Northwest and her Leroy. The early spring landscape zipped by the window as Shirley held her baby and watched the miles go by. Denver, Cheyenne, Salt Lake City, and Boise were all left behind in the wake of the silver, gold, and red Mighty Diesel train. Shirley was quietly grateful for the speed of the trip as she could barely sleep with the anticipation of being back with her dear Lee again. As the Super Chief came to its slow screeching stop in Portland, Oregon, Shirley looked out the window and could see the searching face of Leroy looking at the passenger car windows, trying to catch a glimpse of her. Lee's face slid into a wide grin. Waving back, he rushed down the platform so he could greet her and their son as they exited the train. The past three years had seemed like a dream, a wonderful, beautiful dream that had suddenly turned into a horrible nightmare. Though Leroy still had not divorced Wilma, he had left her. In the spring and summer months, Shirley, Leroy, and Jimmy called the small apartment where they had once lived above the cafe, where Shirley had been working when she had met Lee, home. Leroy topped trees in the cutting season and had found a job at a local sawmill to fill in the slow work periods. It was at the sawmill that Leroy had first met Leroy Jones, the colored man that now lay dead and whose death had forever ruined the happiness that had been Shirley and Lee's for such a short time. Leroy, meet Leroy, Mr. Alexander said with a chuckle as he introduced the two men. Pleasure, Leroy said, holding out his hand to the skinny, wiry Negro man. Leroy Jones eyed Leroy's hand suspiciously, grinned a yellow-toothed grin, and made brief contact with Leroy's outstretched hand. Betcha, he said as he turned and walked away. Don't mind him, Mr. Alexander said. He's just pissed off because he thinks you took his job. Leroy gave Mr. Alexander a questioning look. He wanted to work the big ripsaw, Mr. Alexander explained, but he's just too small to handle the big logs and he knows it. We gave him a raise, but he thinks that we consider him a wimp, and he has taken it as a fucking slap in the face. Mr. Alexander placed a meaty hand on Leroy's shoulder. Just ignore his dumb colored ass. The boy will get over it. It would have been great for Leroy if, as Mr. Alexander had said, the boy will get over it. But Leroy Jones wasn't getting over it, and he made no secret about it. The first day on the job, Leroy had tried to make peace by inviting Leroy to lunch. Leroy had looked at him and sneered, Honky motherfucker, take my name and my job. Fuck you, motherfucker. Leroy had decided that the best thing to do would be to just avoid the other Leroy, but that wasn't going to happen either. Not a day passed that Leroy wouldn't return home with a story for Shirley about some remark Leroy had made about him or some sick practical joke that he had tried to pull on Leroy. Why don't you just punch the little nigger out? Shirley had asked. Because, Leroy had said with a sigh of resignation in his voice, the little bastard isn't worth my job. Leroy brushed the sawdust off his sleeves of the blue flannel shirt he was wearing as he made his way back to his locker. It was lunchtime, it was Friday, and it was payday. It was also about a week before they would be making their seasonal move back to Texas, 
and Leroy and Shirley were going shopping for new clothes for Jimmy right after he got home from work. Yes, it was a beautiful day. Leroy opened his locker and removed his black lunch pail. Leroy thought it felt heavier than when he had placed it in his locker that morning. Holding the pail in one hand, he undid the latch, and as he did, the contents came spilling out of the pail, covering his pants and boots. Leroy had filled the lunch pail with red paint, covering the contents with a thick pigment and ruining the lunch within. As Leroy stood looking down at the paint that was spreading on the floor and dripping from the pail, he could hear Leroy cackling behind him. Look at that stupid white boy, he laughed. He done spilled his lunch all over himself. Leroy snapped. Turning, he hurled the ruined lunch pail at Leroy and charged in after. Grabbing Leroy under the throat, he slammed him into the wall. Listen to me, nigger, Leroy breathed through clenched teeth. If your fucking colored ass ever comes near me again, I'll kill you. I'll fucking kill you. You hear me, son of a bitch, he screamed. I'll fucking kill you. Leroy was nose to nose with Leroy, whose eyes now bulged out of his head like two glossy ping pong balls. Leroy slowly became aware of the other people in the locker room who were all staring at the confrontation between the two men. Leroy shoved Leroy away from him and jamming a finger toward him said, You've been warned, motherfucker. Stay away. Leroy rubbed his neck as Leroy left the room. That night, Leroy told Shirley what had happened. Mr. Alexander gave both men a warning, emphasizing to Leroy Jones that any further incidents would mean his immediate termination. I would like to terminate him, Leroy had said, to which he and Shirley had laughed. It was the last time Shirley would recall later that she and Leroy had a good laugh together. Leroy grabbed the log tongs and opened them up. Log tongs are like a large pair of curved scissors. Opening them up, the points of the tongs are rammed into the log. One set is used on either end of the log. Lock and tackle hoist are attached to both sets of tongs, and two men lift the log onto the conveyor to get it to be ripped. Leroy slammed his tongs into the bark of the large pine log, anchoring the points in the soft bark. Hey, Lee! The voice made him bristle, and he felt his anger rising as he spun around. I told you to stay the fuck away from me, Leroy, he yelled. Easy, man. I's come in peace. Leroy eyed him suspiciously. Here, man, I comes with a gift. Leroy said as he reached for the pint bottle of whiskey in his back pocket. He held the bottle out to Leroy. Here, man, you go ahead and take it, he said, grinning his yellow-toothed grin. I just want to say sorry for fucking with you. Leroy continued to look at the bottle in Leroy's outstretched hand. Come on, man, he said, shaking the bottle. I'm sorry, man. Let's make peace, okay? Leroy shook his head. I don't know, he began. Oh, come on, man. I says I'm sorry. Leroy reached out and took the bottle out of Leroy's hand. The bullshit's over? He asked. Yeah, man, the bullshit's over, Leroy assured him. Leroy held the bottle of amber liquid up, examining its contents. Unscrewing the cap, he sniffed the oatmeal and held up the bottle in a toast. To a fresh start, Leroy said, bringing the bottle to his lips and taking a long pull from it. Amen, brother. Amen, Leroy Jones said as he watched Leroy down the whiskey. Leroy offered the bottle to Leroy, who declined and produced one of his own from his other back pocket. Uncapping it, he touched it Leroy's bottle and took a long pull from it. You were a real shit, Leroy said as he took another swig from his bottle. Not as big a shit you gonna be in a minute, Leroy cackled. What do you mean? Leroy's question was cut short as the cramp hit his gut. The bottle dropped from his hand and he doubled over and hugged his stomach. What was all he could manage as another cramp hit him. Oh, 
Leroy cackled. I knows that you's a shit and I proves it, Honky Boy. Can you say medicolaxative? <laughs> Leroy turned and ran, doubled over for the restroom, but he never made it. With a loud frack sound, his bowels let loose and wet runny shit filled his pants. Leroy was now holding his gut as peals of laughter issued from him and tears filled his eyes. Almost hysterical in his glee, he was pointing at Leroy, drawing attention to his embarrassment for the gathering cloud of mill workers. Ooh-wee, that white bundle's been shitty himself. <laughs> Just look at Leroy's taunting ended abruptly as his head went sailing across the mill yard. His lifeless, decapitated body stood for just a moment, creating a bright crimson fountain from the neck that just a moment before had held a laughing head. Leroy walked through the group of now shocked, sickened, and screaming mill workers, his gaze fixed on the head. The mouth still moved as if still wanting to taunt. Leroy dropped the log tongs down in front of the head and calmly asked, Who's the shit now, nigger? The eyes of Leroy Jones glazed over. His last practical joke played out. Well, that completes this episode of the Rubber Biscuit Road Show. Tune in next week for episode 10, The Kindness of Strangers. But until then, this is your friendly neighborhood gypsy saying may God bless and keep you and yours. Later, Gators. Bye-bye now. <laughs>